started. And if, if you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be pretty much going straight through uh, the scriptures from t- chapter 21. I hope to get through most of 22 tonight. Uh, so by the end, uh, we should be in uh, really approaching Second Kings the next time we meet. I, I want to say we'll be off next week for spring break. That's going to be spring break. And so there's going to be a lot of people not here. And so we, we will uh, uh, not meet next week. And then we'll be back on after that. So uh, no meeting next Wednesday. But uh, just as kind of a review for where we, where we find ourselves right now, you'll remember in uh, the last couple of weeks here, uh, Elijah had an appointment from God to bring or announce really, or kind of raise up, I guess you could say, the judgment that God is going to bring against Ahab and his house. So that, that's the agenda that we're dealing with really from Mount Carmel. If you can think about uh, just the, the flow of First Kings, you have Mount Carmel in First Kings 17-ish. And from that moment really on uh, until um, really uh, some, some ways into Second Kings, you're dealing with the raising up of these different swords against Israel, and the first being Elisha, the prophet, to follow Elijah, who has a, at least in the recorded Old Testament, Elisha has a much longer tenure than Elijah, and a much, you might even say more significant maybe, tenure than Elisha, than Elijah. But Elisha is one of those swords, and then we're going to see uh, Jehu and Hazael coming uh, later in uh, or at the beginning of second Kings, but um, Elisha is there following along with Elijah learning and becoming the apprentice of Elijah uh, in order to be a prophet like his master. And God is going to use Elisha to be one of the uh, judging swords, if you will, against the house of Ahab. And we're going to see Ahab's conclusion tonight and how what Ahab does, and and I mean, almost kind of, you might even say strange in the way Ahab behaves and responds to all of this. And then uh, you also have, let me go back, I, I think I skipped two. Um, remember that in the, la- the last time we left off, Ben-Hadad I, who is the king of Syria, which is also called Aram, you also will hear it called Damascus sometimes as its, its most prominent city, but Ben-Hadad I is the king, and he had started to prepare for war against Israel. And so, remember, he's the one that comes, in, comes to Ahab, and he presents him an ultimatum. I want all of your money and all of your best women and all of your best children. Uh, I'm going to take them all. And Ahab says, yeah, that's okay. And then, so, but then he ups the price, and he says, well, I'm going to take anything I want. And Ahab goes, well, that's a little bit too far. And so... Uh, there is two really successive battles in two successive years where Ahab goes against Ben-Hadad and really puts an end to Ben-Hadad's, um, you know, aggression, if you will, against uh, Israel and, and sort of puts him in his place. But instead of killing uh, Ben-Hadad, like he should have, he should have put him to death. Instead of doing that, remember, he makes a treaty with him. And he says, okay, look, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I'll spare your life uh, if you, you know, allow certain things. I mean, hey, dad, to really to kind of, I guess, uh, as a uh, shrewd negotiator as he is, he turns out to be, 
he says, look, you can, you can take some money from Damascus. You can put up a store in Damascus. You can take money from us and, and we'll give you certain allowances in, in Damascus and all that kind of stuff if you spare my life. And so um, Ahab sees it as his own responsibility or his own ability, his own privilege of making a treaty. But that, that wasn't obviously what God had wanted him to do. So he disobeys the Lord in establishing this treaty. But tonight, what I think we're going to see is maybe a reason why he sees it to his benefit to establish this treaty with Ben-Hadad. One, one side is the money, right? I mean, like, you know, a guy tells you, okay, you can come into my country, and you can make tons of money here. That's probably one big reason but I think there's another reason, and we're going to see that in Assyria. We talked a little bit about it last time, but Assyria is coming in, and we get maybe get a little hint of that towards the end of Ahab's life. So in the final three chapters of First Kings, what we see is this focus is on Ahab's sins, where he begins to basically parallel the missteps or the sins, if you will, of Saul in First Samuel, except he does them in opposite order. His actions towards Yahweh's enemies, where he, um, he, he spares the life of a king that he should have killed. Saul does that in Agag, if you'll remember. He, his treatment of one of his brothers, which we're going to see tonight. Uh, and finally, in response to the word of the prophet Yahweh, he, he, the prophet of Yahweh, he doesn't, um, he doesn't uh, do what, what he should. And that's, we're going to see that also in chapter 22 tonight. And so Ahab parallels these three sins of Saul, but he does them in reverse order. And so immediately as, as readers of the Old Testament, we should, having hopefully just come out of the whole saga with Saul and David, that we should be kind of like seeing this with fresh eyes and going, wait a minute, I've seen this happen before in the life of Saul. And Saul's life ends tragically. It doesn't, doesn't end well. It actually ends in, uh, in battle. And we're going to see also that tonight too with, uh, with Ahab. Uh, ending in a very similar way. Now, the story starts off in uh, with a particularly odd scene. Here is Ahab, and he approaches this man named Naboth, and uh, Naboth has this beautiful vineyard in Jezreel. And I'll show you a map in just a second where we'll lay out some of the, the places. And I don't want to put up the first point just yet. I want to tell you about it first. So um, Naboth has this beautiful vineyard in Jezreel, and Ahab sees it and he thinks, man, I would really like to have that vineyard. And so he goes and asks Naboth for it. And Naboth tells him, no, you can't have it. And so what does Ahab do as the king of Israel? You might think, well, as a wicked king, maybe he just kills Naboth right there. Well, not really. Uh, maybe he just takes it as okay, I can't have it, and that's, that's that, and goes about his day. Not really that either. Instead, uh, Ahab mopes. He goes into a deep depression over not being able to get his vineyard. And so I want to read this in 1 Kings 21, 1-16. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after, a after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good for you, then I'll give you the value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. And Ahab went into this house vexed and sullen 
because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Boy, get up and act like a man. No, that's not what she said. She said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, Give me your vineyard for your money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered me, I will not give you my vineyard. You can just hear him saying that. Uh, and Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? <laughs> do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Wow. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the, the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth, uh, with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God the king and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed God, the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. How wicked is that? Um, so... Naboth has this vineyard and Ahab wants it. He asks him for it. Naboth won't give it to him. And um, when Ahab goes into Mope, Jezebel, his wife, comes in and inquires, obviously, about the reason why he's moping. And Jezebel aims to fix this whole situation. So she obviously takes his letterhead and sends out a, sends out a letter uh, 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 by, in his name and, and does all of these kinds of things. And obviously, this is incredibly wicked. I have that up. Um, obviously, it's incredibly wicked what she, what she does, but there is a, a, even more wickedness underneath it than at first might kind of meet the eye. Um, so she finds out what has happened, and she decides to remedy it by taking two just worthless men, two men that have zero integrity, because they're going to bring a false charge against Naboth. They're going to arrange this sort of meeting where they have a... a a feast, as it were, and they're going to sit opposite of him and bring a charge against him that's completely false. And of course, we know based on the Old Testament law, a charge of two or three witnesses is required to be valid evidence in a court of law and worthy of stoning this man to death. And so the two witnesses are going to stand up. They're going to present both their, their same, you know, kangaroo court, essentially, and accuse this man of a crime that he didn't commit just so that they can stone him to death so that Ahab can have his inheritance. But I want you to notice the reason that Naboth won't sell him the vineyard. Um, it's, it's actually 
really kind of important. And Ahab slash Jezebel's uh, feet here, or what they what what they do to this man, uh, is incredibly wicked and, and a sin actually against the Lord. Because Naboth, oh, let me go back here. Let me give you a little map real quick, just just so we get our bearings straight. Mount Carmel is right here up in the corner. Robert, I don't know if you can follow me with the mouse for the people, for the, the millions watching around the world. Um, here at Mount Carmel, Jezreel, the city of Jezreel is here. The valley of Jezreel is right here, just above it, okay? So that's where we're talking about. Ignore all the colors and the lines and all that. Just valley of Jezreel is right in here. Je- the city of Jezreel, so it's just to the north and to the, east, the west of Jezreel, and then Mount Carmel. So they've come down from Mount Carmel, all the way down to Jezreel, and the valley is right in there. And so Naboth's vineyard is right in this area. And um, so uh, just as another little thing, we'll see if this actually works. There is uh, some, I I think this is interesting. Maybe you don't think this is interesting at all. There is, uh, they've done some excavation in the valley of Jezreel, and they've actually found a vineyard that is as old as Ahab. So if we can see it, that's not me. Uh, But anyway, Here's the, this is, so this is in the Valley of Jezreel, and that's a vineyard. Who knows what they're saying? It's in a foreign language. They might be yelling profanities for all I know. But uh, uh, so this is a, this would be a vineyard about the time of of Ahab. So who knows? Maybe that's Naboth's vineyard. We don't know. Um, But anyway, um, the reason Naboth rejects Ahab's offer is because his vineyard is an inheritance. And this, this goes to something a little bit deeper. You can actually see that in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 3, where he says, But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You have to understand the way, a, uh, the, the difference in the way we think about land and the way an Israelite thinks about land. We think about it as it's our property. It's a financial investment. So it appreciates in value. The more things that are take up land around here, the less land there is available, the more our land or the value of our land goes up. And in some day, our kids, once we die, I guess, we'll take our land and we'll sell it to somebody else. So we'll sell our house or whatever and take whatever it, its value is at that day and, and, and own it uh, or, or take the value for it. That is not how an Israelite thinks about land. The land does not belong to them. They, they know this. This is sort of written into their law. The land of Israel belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord's. And he gives as he sees fit. So for someone to have land passed down to them from their fathers, this is a gift from the Lord to their family. It's a way the Lord is actually providing for their family. So the way Naboth is understanding this as the Lord forbid it, it's not mine to sell to you. This is an inheritance from my fathers. I didn't come upon this land. It's not mine to give. And so what that means, because it's an inheritance, this is why you see in Leviticus 25, if you read the law, the year of Jubilee was supposed to be a time when the land was gifted back to its previous owner. So let's, let's set up a scenario where you're poor, you need food, okay? You, need, you can't provide for your family, but you're sitting on perhaps a, a, a piece of, of real estate that's worth some money. 
you sell it to somebody so that you can take money and you can provide for your family. Perhaps you would become an indentured servant on that land and you might, you might continue to work it uh, for the new owner. Uh, according to the law in Leviticus 25, in the year of Jubilee, which would be every seventh year, they would return the land back to its previous owner. You would have the land given back to you because the person who bought it from you would see it as not theirs either. That the produce that they're reaping from the land is theirs to take and use, and that's the benefit. The land itself is not the benefit. It's the produce that comes from the land. And so they would, they would take it, and, and so, that, so it had to be given back. So for Naboth, with Ahab, it's not an, it, it's not an issue. I can't sell it to you. That's, that would be a sin against the Lord. So you can see what kind of sin it is that this you know, unlawful marriage of Ahab and Jezebel concoct this crazy scheme to get this land back by just railroading Naboth and taking him out and stoning him to death. You can see what kind of evil that is and the kind of thumbing their nose at the Lord for the land that he's actually given to Naboth and his family. So the, the sin here is actually much greater than it might first appear even. As heinous as it is, what they do, it's even worse. All right, so uh, he says, you know, I, I really, I can't do that. I can't give it to you. And it all goes back to really to this. Um, now, it shouldn't escape our notice that it's Jezebel who is the orchestrator of this whole cockamamie scheme. And the reason that, that that's important is because if you think about the way, um, the way Jezebel would think about a person's property or about the role of the king in the land, her worldview is entirely consistent with virtually every worldview around Israel. Okay, And wh- where is she from? Well, she's from Sidon. She's the princess of Sidon. She has seen king's work in the past, namely in her father, right? And the Sidonian way, the Tyrian way, which would be the land of Tyre, the way the Edomites work, the way basically every land area around Israel works is exactly in accordance to what Jezebel does. She says, wait a second, aren't you the king of Israel? If you're the king, then you can take whatever you want. Because for her, the king is the son of God. That's the way every nation around Israel views it. But this is the big shift that takes place in the nation of Israel. A tremendous shift in in the the worldview thinking of the nation of Israel. Remember in Genesis 3, or really Genesis 1, God creates man and woman, and what does he say about them? Let us create man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them right? And he gave them dominion. Was that referring to a specific king? No. In fact, Christians and Jews, Christians to this day, Jews to this day, and Jews back then, see every person is made in the image of God. But that's entirely inconsistent with every other nation surrounding Israel at the time. Every other nation sees only the king made in the image of God, and everyone else are, are his, is his servant. And so if you are God in the flesh, then whatever you want, you take, right? 
There's a, um, a book that was written by a man named John Oswalt. Uh, and it, the book is called The Bible Among the Myths. And it is, I will, I will say, it is a deep book. Uh, it is, it's, it would probably be pretty hard, pretty difficult to read. I think it, it's, it's kind of a slow and sort of academic read, I think. But um, and it, it has a, a good bit of like, you know, Hebrew words in it and things like that that he translates that you can kind of skip past. However, I would say that that book is a phenomenal um, uh, just uh, construction of Old Testament history. And, and what he does in that book is basically show you how the worldview of the Israelites could not have been fabricated. There's just not a way that that worldview springs up when 100% of the surrounding nations don't believe that. Nobody was monotheistic. And Israel, out of nowhere, is a monotheistic religion. No one believes that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone believes that the king only is made in the image of God. And out of nowhere, Israel believes that everyone is made in the image of God. That this worldview could not have sprung from anything other than divine revelation. And he basically makes that argument through the book. It's a very good book. It's a very tough read, I think, um, for really anybody. Not, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's tough, but it's, it's a very valuable book. It's called The Bible Among the Myths by John Oswald. Really, really good. But, but basically, that's kind of what we're seeing play out here is that here is Jezebel, a representative of a pagan nation, and she brings to the nation of Israel a pagan worldview about how the king takes possession of land that he doesn't currently own. Ahab, this is yours. You can do whatever you want. I tell you what, why don't you sit there on your couch and weep? I'm going to take your letterhead, I'm going to send it out, and I'm going to fix this for you. And you, by the end of the day, you'll have Naboth's vineyard. And sure enough, he does. But as you can probably imagine, God doesn't take too kindly to that. And so what is he going to do? How does God speak to the king? He does it through the mouths of his prophets. And so he's going to send Elijah along to confront Ahab in his sin and tell him exactly what he's done and tell him the consequence of his sin. And then something probably what you might see is out of the blue transpires. So let's look at 17 to 24 here, First uh, Kings 21. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O oh, my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab every male. Cut off Ahab from every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, 
the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So he sends, oh, did I not put that up? Sorry. He sends Elijah to come down and confront Ahab, and he tells him something very specific. The dogs are going to lick your blood when you die, which is not a great death. Dogs are unclean, uh, and probably in the 21st century, we might have people say, oh, how cute. Uh, you know, dogs are unclean and they're, they're filthy animals. Uh, might as well have been pigs coming to eat his blood. It's a, a terrible way to die. And the prophecy is that's what's going to happen. So what does Ahab do? You might be caught off guard by this. I, I, I think I would be um, in reading this. Ahab actually responds in remorse, which is a really strange reaction, I think. Um, here is Ahab who doesn't seem like the kind of person that would respond in repentance to the Lord. And yet that's precisely what he does. After Elijah has killed all of his prophets on Mount Carmel, you would think at that point he would go, oh man, what have I done? And he doesn't. And yet here he has done this, apparently knows that he shouldn't do that, which is why he's so sad. Once it has already happened, uh, once his wife has done this, then he goes along with it. And now that he's been confronted by it, he's actually saddened by it. Look at verse 25. Um, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard the, those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, listen to this. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So, I think this is the most, one of the most profound passages in all of Ahab's story. God has every right at, at this moment to squash Ahab, and, and frankly, every reason to squash Ahab. And he doesn't. It's unfathomable to me that after Ahab has done the atrocities that he's done has been really the puppet for his his wife, uh, his wife's wickedness. Um, that the Lord would see an act of repentance and withhold judgment until after he dies. Um, to me, that's that's a, a phenomenal thing. He doesn't wipe out Ahab's kids until after Ahab is dead because of this act of repentance. And uh, I, I think, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but, you know, I, when I, as I was growing up, I, it was hard to understand the Lord's forgiveness. And I think it, it, it is often for many Christians um, that we struggle with sin and we think about, you know, the Lord forgiving us. And, and I can't help but think about the way the Lord responds as like my own father would respond, or maybe like I would respond as a father to these repeated sins against me. And 
it's hard not to imagine the Lord being that kind of capricious, uh, fickle, um, you know, quick to anger kind of person like I am often, you know. And when you see scenes like this where Ahab has done rampant wickedness or in, uh, in Jonah, in the book of Jonah with Nineveh doing rampant wickedness, um, one act of repentance, genuine contrition and remorse for sin, and the Lord forgives. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, I think, for us to shape our view of God's forgiveness by stories like these, but yet we find them in almost every page of Scripture. And it's, it's like the Lord knows that our default way of thinking about him is going to be, well, like we would respond. But it's like every page of Scripture is saying, that is not how I respond. And it's, and it's difficult for us to do that when we you know, see passages like this, but look no further than the story of Christ in the gospel. Here is the perfect Son of God dying on the cross for what? So that God, who is just, can also be merciful to us. His mercy and His justice converge there on the cross, giving us forgiveness. And that is the view of God's attitude towards us that we should have, that we should fight for, is that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And um, so, I, you know, as, as much as we can, allow these passages to influence the way we really think about how God relates to us, um, obviously through the blood of his son now for us in the new covenant. Um, so sw- shifting gears just a little bit. Oh, let me go back. Um, shifting gears just a little bit. There might have been a reason why uh, Ben-Hadad, you know, plead, obviously pleads for his life, but then why Ahab relents of killing Ben-Hadad and instead makes a covenant with him. And that is because at the same time as all of this is happening, you know, Ahab's death and the covenant of Ben-Hadad are only about three years apart. And so... Ahab makes this covenant with Ben-Hadad, and within a short period of time, Assyria comes knocking at the door. Now, what I'm about to tell you doesn't actually take place in the Bible. This is a historical event that we are well aware of because we have an inscription from a man by the name of Shalmaneser III. Shalmaneser III is the king of Assyria, and he's beginning to kind of mount this army. He actually takes Assyria to prominence for really the first time in in a little minute, okay? It's been a minute since Assyria has been anything of prominence. And so Shalmaneser III takes Assyria to prominence, and they're beginning to build this army that they're going to conquer lands. Well, it seems apparent that Ben-Hadad and Ahab are well aware of what Assyria is doing out on the horizon. And probably the reason for the treaty between, um, between uh, Ahab and Ben-Hadad is because if we don't stand together, Assyria is going to mow both of us down. So the sin that Ahab commits in letting Ben-Hadad live is not merely just that he disobeyed the Lord and he should have killed Ben-Hadad, 
but it's also a, I need to save my own neck. And how, Lord, could you possibly save me if I go kill this man and I don't have all of his resources joining me in battle against Assyria? You get it? So Assyria is knocking on the door. And so what happens is um, Shalmaneser is moving across the land and he comes to, I'll bring up the map here. It keeps skipping twice on me, sorry. Um, Shalmaneser, you ready, Robert? <clears throat> Shalmaneser III is over here in Assyria. Here's Assyria. Here's the capital, Nineveh. They mo- he moves down this little area here and starts conquering people in all of these little areas. Comes all the way down past Aleppo, uh, all the way down to Karkar, right here. And at the Battle of Karkar, Ben-Hadad and Ahab join forces they meet him at the Battle of Karkar, and here's where things get a little fuzzy. Shalmaneser records that he won, but that can't be true. It's not uncommon that every king tells you they won, all right? Uh, and once it recorded, I won that battle just so you know. It is at best a draw. And the reason we know that is because Shalmaneser basically goes away, he goes back to Assyria and doesn't do much after that. So we know, since he doesn't, doesn't continue on down, remember this is, we called this the Fertile Crescent. This area is the Fertile Crescent. Remember down here towards the, I don't know, towards where Jackson stands on Sunday is Egypt, okay? Uh, here's the Fertile Crescent going all the way up here. He wants to possess every, and he's already possessed a lot of Babylon, which is down in this area, okay? Um, he wants to possess not only Babylon all the way down to the, the, the sea down here, but also all the way up through the Fertile Crescent, down into the Levant, and, which is right here in Lebanon and all this area, and down into Egypt. So there's no reason for him to stop and just go back home unless, of course, he met a resistance that he couldn't conquer. And so he portrays it like he won, or he doesn't really give much of a conclusion on how the battle ended, which probably means he, it was at best a draw. The other reason why we know that that's probably what happened is Ahab and Ben-Hadad end their alliance together shortly after that. I'll leave it up there for just a second if you want to keep that. You can also download the keynote online too. It'll, it'll have that image on it. Um, I'm off here. You got me? Hang on. There we go. All right. So... Here's the other reason why we know that it was probably a victory for them is that Assyria goes back into their land and Ahab feels comfortable enough with what happened to Assyria to end his alliance with Ben-Hadad. There's a city in Israel that Ben-Hadad has as his possession. And that city is called Ramoth-Gilead. And so Ramoth-Gilead is under the control of Ben-Hadad and, and uh, Ahab wants it back. And so the way Ahab goes about getting it back is he goes to the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and says, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we join forces and go get Ramoth-Gilead back? This is where things get, I think, kind of funny. As a sarcastic person, as a very sarcastic person, I enjoy the prophet's response here in just a minute. But basically... Ben, uh, Ahab and Jehoshaphat decide we're going to go get Ramoth Gilead back from Ben-Hadad. We're going to fight him. And so they, they decide, okay, okay, what do we got to do? Well, Ahab's like, well, let me, let me, let me gather the prophets around me. Now, Ahab ain't got no holy prophets around him 
save for maybe Elijah and maybe a few others that are hiding in caves and whatnot. And all he has are false prophets around him. So he gathers around him all the, all the ones that are the best for him that he thinks. And he decides, um, let's hear what they have to say. And they all tell him, yeah, go to Ramoth Gilead. Fight Ben-Hadad. You will win. The Lord will give you victory. These are prosperity gospel preaching false prophets. All right. So Joel Osteen and his friends come around and tell him he's going to win. He's going to have certain victory. God would never, ever allow you to go into defeat. And so Ahab tells Jehoshaphat, hey, I have been assured by all my prophets that I am going to win. We are going to win. So join with me. We have nothing to lose. And Jehoshaphat, it's almost, it's almost like he knows Ahab's reputation because he's like, look, can we get like a third opinion on all of this? Can we just have maybe bring in somebody else? Are there any other prophets around? And Ahab says, well, there's one, there's this one guy. His name's Micaiah. I hate the guy because he never tells me what I want to hear, which is exactly the kind of person that you want around, all right? You don't want the yes men, but you want that guy. And so Jehoshaphat is like, well, like, let's, maybe we should listen to him. Let's, let's bring him in. Let's give him a chance. And so they bring in Micaiah. I want to read this out of the Bible here, 1 Kings 22, 13 to 28. It says this, And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. All the false prophets, that is. Let your word be like the word of, the, of one of them and speak favorably. <laughs> it's always the best way to get you know, an unbiased opinion is tell him what you want to hear. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, oh, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now you read that and you think, what? That seems strange. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you will speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? (laughs) So he knows that he's being sarcastic. He's not telling the truth. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no masters. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has, the Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of uh, Kenanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? 
And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, and take him back to Ammon, Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you people. So, well, here's a, this is a funny one. So, Micaiah comes and tells, he's told, tell him what, you know, all the, the, it's all been favorable, so you need to go give a favorable report too. And Micaiah says, look, I'm going to say what the Lord tells me to say. And the first thing that he gives him is this very sarcastic response of, oh, no, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go up there. You'll, you'll have, you'll be, you'll, sure, you'll have victory. Sure. And he, tell, he threatens him, you need to tell me the truth. And so he says, this is what I saw. I saw a heavenly vision. And in this heavenly vision, here is God standing in his throne room in his court and all the uh, his, his uh, I guess, officers, you might say, are standing around him. And he says, who's going to go and, so, and ensure that Ahab goes to Ramoth Gilead and dies there? And the conclusion is one spirit saying, I'll go be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his false prophets and he'll follow their advice and go. And so that's exactly what happens. A lying spirit comes to the mouths of the false prophets, which we saw a very similar thing with, with Saul. Um, comes to the mouths of the false prophets and um, tells him what he wants to hear. And so what happens? Ahab goes into battle. He listens to the false prophets and not to Micaiah, in spite of the fact that he knows that Micaiah never tells him what he wants to hear, that he speaks according to the word of the Lord, and Ahab ignores it still. So how long did that repentance actually last? Maybe not that long. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. And so Ahab goes up and in and goes into battle. And in the thick of the fray, Ahab is mortally wounded. He f- continues to fight until he expires at the close of the day. And his body is carried to Jezreel, where the chariot, which is where was Jezreel? That's where the vineyard was that he stole. Um, carried to Jezreel. Um where the chariot that bore it, covered with his blood, was licked by dogs in fulfillment of the prophetic word. Um, so, how do we what? What do we do with all of that? Um, we talked a long time ago about the way God operates uh, His heavenly court and the way it's presented to us in Scripture, um, being that He has ultimate sovereign authority and. He often doesn't just stick his finger in and do this thing. He appoints others to, to um, operate on his behalf. A, a case in point, a perfect example of that would be mankind. In Genesis 1, they're created in his image for the purpose of ruling and reigning and having dominion over the earth. God could certainly do that. He has all the power and wherewithal to, to, to do that. He's omnipresent, omniscient, and, you know, obviously all of those things. And so he can do that if he wants to, but he chooses to delegate his authority to, to others, still maintaining ultimate authority, of course, but uh, it does give his authority. And so there is a heavenly courtroom that, you know, operates, does his will, performs his will on his behalf. And uh, one of those is to 
entice Ahab to go up and ultimately meet his death as according to the sovereign plan of the Lord. And so what happens, but that the sovereign plan of the Lord is accomplished in that Ahab meets his demise exactly as the Lord said he would meet his demise, lick his blood licked by dogs. Um, and we'll see uh, Jezebel's later. But in spite of Ahab's foolishness, I think this is one thing that I want, I, I want us to really ponder on about how, how do we process all that's happened in Ahab's life and what we've seen over just the past few weeks, that in spite of Ahab's foolishness and constant abuse of God's prophets, the Lord responds to his act of repentance. To me, that, that's one of, if you don't take anything else from Ahab's narrative, you have to see that, that in spite of all of that, God still remains faithful to his people and to the king whom he has appointed to be over the nation. And when the king responds in repentance, God responds in kind. Um, Additionally, know that in spite of the heavenly courtroom, the lying spirit that's going to go out and all of this, the Lord still warns Ahab. That should not escape your notice. Ahab is not the victim here of deceit at the Lord's hand. That's not possible. The Lord tells him the truth. It's, if anything, evidence of his hard-heartedness and blindness. Uh, think about Pharaoh in Egypt as Moses is leading them out of, out of Egypt. You know, we see, I think, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, these numbers popped into my head and I'm hoping they're true, but you can check me on this. Nine times it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Nine times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, the, the reality is the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he didn't respond to the plagues, but the way the Lord wanted him to respond to the plague. At the same time, Pharaoh got exactly what he wanted. He, didn't, he wasn't the victim there. He didn't want to submit to the Lord, and the Lord forestalled his repentance at all. He got exactly what he wanted. Um, and I think that's also the case with Ahab. The Lord sends and ensures that Ahab's going to go up to Ramoth Gilead and die there at the hands of Ben-Hadad. And at the same time, Ahab got exactly what he wanted. He wanted all those prophets to tell him exactly that because he wanted Ramoth Gilead and he was going to do, stop at nothing to get it. And so the Lord tells him the truth and he still doesn't hear the truth. And even if you want to go back to the Exodus, the 10th plague, death of the firstborn, seems to get the attention of Pharaoh. But it doesn't last. He doesn't want to repent and follow the Lord. He, he wants to be hard-hearted. Um, I know those are difficult concepts to wrestle with, but I think at the end of it, we still have to see that the Lord's gracious and merciful and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love like the Bible tells us he is time and time again. Questions? I have a question. Sure. Doug. I commented a question. Um, I think you're 
uh, you did a really nice job of pointing out uh, how how you would juxtapose juxtapose justice oppose juxtapose yeah that word <laughs> the free will of man and the sovereignty of God and as as agents of free will we make choices and we're accountable for those choices but God's sovereign will is always done right and so it, it gets difficult also when you talk about this idea that uh, like Nineveh is a perfect example of that where God so the prophet uh, Jonah is sent to prophesy to Nineveh to, uh, that they need to repent or God's going to destroy Nineveh and and they destroy uh, or they repent and God um, I think the Bible says something like God changes his mind or something but he really doesn't it just well, in I mean, Nineveh, it's the king that says it, maybe he'll relent. And it, it says the, you know, the disaster obviously doesn't come to Nineveh, but it, I don't think it indicates the Lord's feeling. I think the, the relentance or, or the, the changing of his mind, as it's sometimes translated, is the act in Exodus 32, where Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel and the Lord doesn't destroy Israel as he has told Moses he's going to. Go ahead. Yeah, and it, it's some, it's a somewhat analogous to the situation with with Ahab. Ahab repents, and and God forestalls his judgment on Ahab, and and so it's. But it's not like I I know we think that sometimes people talk about the fact that you can change God's mind if you do A B C, and you can't really do that. He is either he's God or he isn't God. Yeah. And if he can be manipulated by even repentance, right? And he's not a sovereign God, and so it's hard for me to wrap my my arms around that. It's right. because it's so the um, idea of us operating within our our choice. Our we have choice variables, and we do what we will. And and I mean, Jonathan Edwards talks about that. That yeah. uh, when you're talking about free will, you're doing what you want to do. And, right. and, and uh, he gives certain examples, like um, uh, I think he called it a lion or a tiger. You put a bowl of porridge in front of the lion or tiger and they'll never eat it because it goes against their very nature. Right. And, and, and so that we, we make choices and we are accountable for our choices, but, but God is, is sovereign and, and that's true with our salvation as well. And so that, we're so dependent on him right. for everything. And, and you can, I think you can become, you know, a hyper Calvinist and say that nothing that I don't do matters and that isn't right. But on the other hand, we operate within our humanity. And unless God changes our heart in terms of salvation, we can't turn to him. And also in life, we can't, unless we have his grace, we can't follow him. Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, I think the whole, the relationship you know, between all of those things, and especially as we see it play out in the Old Testament, we see these heavenly throne room scenes. We we see the same thing about the lying spirit in uh, in uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Saul's story. We see um, we see several instances where, uh, like even in Job, if you remember Job's story, I, th- I think we see these sort of heavenly throne room scenes and um, and God accomplishing His sovereign will. Uh, and how that interacts with, you know, man's uh, choices and, and, and his own desires and things like that is always one of those things that sort of sits 
just above our knowledge of how we can, how we actually relate to the sovereign will of the Lord in some of these situations. And, and it's often difficult, I think, to wrestle with stuff like that. Um, but I, I think one thing that's, some things that have helped me along the way uh, kind of deal with, with some of these issues is that I have to be assured that one reason I know God cannot change his mind is because to change your mind, it would be to actually go to something better. And how could God have ever done something inferior to begin with, right? That would be to admit that he had, a, he lacked a certain knowledge. So I have to throw that out uh, immediately. And when you dig into, we don't have time to do all this, but when you dig into translational issues and things like that with some of the other translations of how they interpret um, the Lord relenting, uh, that, that, that becomes evident that that's what they've done, uh, is, is not understood that. The other is um, that I know that I'm, I'm bound to sin. I think that the Bible teaches that uh, time and again, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Um, if then I'm, I'm bound to sin, I require not the Lord's intervention to do evil. I require the Lord's intervention to do good. And so, um, you know, good and pleasing choices. Paul, Paul says without faith, it's impossible to please God, which I think what he's getting at there is that without the intervention of the Lord's spirit in us, there is no possible way of ever pleasing the Lord. So while I have free agency, let's say prior to, uh, well, free agency, while I have free agency, that agency is bound to sin. And so I can't act beyond what I'm bound to do. The only way I'm able to act in a way that's pleasing to the Lord is that the Lord gives me his spirit to do so. So in that way, I actually become free. Before that, before the agency of God comes into my heart, I'm bound towards sin perpetually and destined for hell. That's, that's the only way you can see that actually happen. So, um, so when I see people, you know, doing things that are, you know, um, that, that are, that are inherently sinful, that, that's who we are as humans. That's what we're bound to do. I think Luther wrote the book bondage of the will, which is a, a basically a explaining more in depth of that. Um, it's kind of like the way I think about it is kind of like a prisoner, uh, declaring themselves free, you know, because they can walk around a courtyard well, that's not freedom. You're bound to the prison walls, uh, which is essentially us prior to conversion. Um, Post-conversion, we still have the ability to walk back into the prison, but with the Lord's Spirit, we actually have the ability to please Him as well. Um, and so, anyway, all of that also falls into divine sovereignty, which is another topic altogether. Sorry, I don't mean to get off on all that. That's a, those, are, those are deep topics. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> In four minutes, let's talk about... <laughs> no. Other questions? All right. Well, let's pray and... Oh, go ahead. Somebody asking a question. I have a question. Sure. So this might seem a little off topic, but as we're um, studying this time period and these places, 
Um, I'm always curious about how the ancient world connects to modern day, how um, these places, what they look like now, who lives there now. And it made me think um, at one point I was um, just thinking about Lebanon and Syria and this war that's been raging in Syria for so long and how people are seeking refuge. And I just wondered, um, do you have any comments on how do we um, pray for and love our enemies when there are people that don't love Christ, like when they're Muslim, mostly in that area of the world, um, although there are a lot of Christians being persecuted also. But how do we love our enemies? I know that seems off topic, but <laughs> that's what's on my mind. <laughs> how do we love and pray for our enemies uh, in a time like this? Um, particularly in that area? Is that what you mean? Um, boy, that's a, uh, interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that's, that's difficult, uh, a difficult conversation within the church is, um, the idea that, uh, Israel is a friend of God. Some want to present Israel as a friend of God, um, currently, and that what we really need is for Israel to gain their their land back and um, and you know to drive out any opposing um, force that would be would be there, uh, sort of returning back to the Old Testament. And there's a there's particular viewpoints in Christianity that that really champion that idea, and um, and that's problematic for Christians to prescribe to that. A lot of Believe it or not, a lot of U.S. foreign policy is sort of driven by that theology, that uh, we really want Israel to gain their land back and, and um, you know, church to be raptured out of here or whatever. And um, I, th- I think, obviously, it's, that's incredibly problematic. What we have to see is that for um, all of the peoples, Jews and Muslims alike in that area, come, anything short of coming to Christ is not hopeful. Um, so I think that that's, you know, first and foremost, we have to remember that um, right now, uh, many in Israel, Muslims and Jews alike, stand as enemies to the cross. And I think that's got to be first and foremost. And so, you know, we do need to pray, obviously, that people in Muslim countries come to Christ, for sure. Those right now stand as the biggest stalwarts to the gospel spread around the world is uh, countries where Christianity is persecuted to death um, or even prevented from even coming in. But we also have to bring that a lot closer to home and, and stop seeing um, Jews as our brothers and really see them as right now enemies to the cross. They don't believe in Jesus and they need the gospel too. And, uh, you know, I think that would go a long way. I'm not sure that that answers your question. I'm not sure if it does or not. But, um, but that, that then also leads us back to our, you know, um, our, our lives here. One of the biggest problems I feel in my own life is that my world gets really big and that I want to make my world really big with Twitter and Facebook and social media and 24-hour news. I start looking at problems that, that are existing in Israel and Lebanon and Russia and wherever. And, um, and I think to myself, I get overwhelmed because I, I go, I, I can't possibly 
you know, see the gospel spread to the depths of China or to Russia or to wherever, right? Um, but I think it would do us well as Christians to keep our world small and to bring it back to the, the actual garden that God has put us in. Um, I, I don't, I, he has not given me any influence whatsoever in China or Russia really to speak of. I mean, there's students that come here that I have the opportunity to interact with. Yes, there are people like that. And I think if Bob Brooks is on the, I'm not sure if Bob Brooks is on the call or not, but, um, but he would certainly tell you there are certain things that he has put in your, you know, purview that, that are, that are helpful. But for the most part, my garden is this city, this church, uh, my own neighborhood. And so, you know, what good is it for me to think about the lost person in Israel when I'm not thinking about the lost person that lives next door to me? Um, so I think it, it helps us to really shrink our world and say, I might not ever go to Russia. I might not ever go to Lebanon or to, to these areas, but the person across the street from me needs the gospel every bit as much as that Muslim or that Jew does, you know? And, um, and so if I'm not willing to actually go across the street and introduce myself, build relationships, have people over at my house and eat dinner with um, people that are lost and have conversations and step out of my shell, so to speak, with people that live around me, then what does it matter about that person overseas? I'm not able to even do that with a person that lives, that I have conversations with all the time, that I, I know what they believe and I know their kids and all that kind of stuff. So I think for, for Christians, it's, it's helpful to say, what is the garden that God has put me in? Uh, who are the people that are within that sphere of influence? And um, what is their relationship with the Lord? If he surrounded me by nothing but Christians, who needs to grow? Who can I disciple? Who could be more mature? Who could understand more about the, the, the word and, and how to live those, the implications of the scriptures out in their daily life? If he has brought in people that are, you know, um, uh, unbelieving, then um, he's obviously done that because that's part of the garden that he's put you in is to evangelize uh, these these particular people that he's brought to you. So I think for us, it, it, it's it's a, a matter of, I, I guess, to answer your question, loving, you know, um, your enemies would be a matter of uh, thinking about who are those people that he's put in your in your life. Uh, first and foremost, and how can I get the gospel to them? Because that is always the intention, right? Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, to be honest. Okay, good. All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to just reflect on this particular time period and um, think about the way you have responded uh, to everyone who comes to you in contrition over sin, that you are faithful and loving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your word tells us that over and over. Straightforwardly in passages like in Psalm 103, and also through your interaction with people like Ahab, that even in spite of his abuse and, and his neglect of your word, you, you still 
forestall judgment and are gracious to him. And I, for one, am so grateful because he's in many ways like me. He's in many ways like all of us. And we are grateful for your patience with us. We're grateful for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, um, where you have just given to us out of your abundance of grace and mercy the storehouses of heaven because of the blood of your son. And we have no rightful claim to that other than we are his. We're grateful for our inclusion in that and that your mercy and grace has been set in stone in the death of your son. We are beneficiaries of that and and may we forever live in light of that, in joy and an abundance of love to everyone else because of the love that you showed us on the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.